Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We hope that you'll enjoy today's broadcast. We study once again together on the Theological Seminar of the Air. Our lesson this uh, time deals with what they call the silence of God, one of the great truths about God's revelation of himself. And, of course, in previous broadcasts, we have dealt with the fatherhood of God, the names of God, the attributes of God. And in a very short time now, we'll be dealing with lessons on Christology. These first 12 broadcasts have dealt with the subject of theology proper, that is, God the Father. And this will be followed by 34 lessons on Christology, lessons about God the Son. Our lesson this week, uh, lesson number 10 in this series, deals with what they call the silence of God, one of the great problems in life, one of the great problems in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, there is no problem being discussed at this present time by the Health Education Welfare Department or the CIA or UNESCO or the United Nations that has any, any importance at all alongside this particular problem. After all, the basic problem is why do the righteous suffer? And the basic problem, when one gets down to it, is if there's any God there, and if there is a loving Father, why is he silent? Why does God allow this or that to happen? Why doesn't God prevent it if he can? The classic question being, why didn't God prevent sin from coming into the world if he could have prevented it? Now, I'm sure you're familiar with this type of reasoning, and it, of course, has created more agnostics and more atheists and skeptics per square foot than any other thing about the Word of God. This matter of why is God silent? Why doesn't God speak up? And let me say, if you're not a saved man, you can't figure it out. In order to waste your time, groups like the National Education Association, the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science, spend their time discussing other things. Shall we say, uh, things that are extremely simplified? After all, uh, neuropsychology and psychosomatics and uh, transcendental meditation and psychotherapy and extrasensitive perception uh, is a very small pickings alongside why God allows things to happen if he could prevent them. Now, this, of course, in the Bible is dealt with in the great book of Job, the oldest book ever written and the oldest book that is any kind of a real book, outclassing the book of the dead as far as uh, Mount Everest uh, classifies a golf green as a mountain. And the book of Job deals with this classic problem, why do the righteous suffer? Why doesn't God prevent disastrous explosions, accidents, typhoons, floods, and wars? The great suffering in the book of Job said that truly when he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. The problem then is why do the righteous suffer? Why is God silent? If God can do something, why doesn't he do it? That's the basic classic problem, and of course the Harvard five-foot shelf of classics has no answer for it at all. An unsaved scientist sitting down at the bedside of a dying man can be no more comfort to him than a 30-year-old mustard plaster. All the scientists can tell a dying sinner is that after your body rots in the ground, you become fertilizer and some animal eats you, and after 250 billion years, the solar system will wear out and cool off and explode and contract and go into something else. Uh, great words of comfort. A typical word spoken by stupid sinners. After all, science is somewhat of a clown. Science, per se, has never solved one basic problem mankind has ever had and never will. Science's batting average for its victory over death is less than a hundred billionth of a half of one percent. For every one person that's born, one person dies. Science has done nothing to change that average and never will. You say, well, science can furnish jobs for people. Well, sure, that's right. You can get a job digging ditches, too. You say, well, science alleviated the suffering people. You mean if you had the money to buy the pills, that's what you're talking about? You don't care of us. Half the population of the world goes to bed at hungry, and about a twentieth of them starve to death at night. 
Science uh, has invented a few things for rich folks who can afford the luxuries, and the rest of the folks have to wait. Science, per se, has done nothing but provide jobs, and, well, you can get a job working for the movies, too, so what does it amount to? Money, yes. You say it made life more comfortable. If you have the money, yes. They said it invented marble drugs. If you have the money to buy them, yes. Well, the problem is, if there's a loving father, why is he silent? Why does he allow a man to come back from overseas with his arms and legs off the basket case for the rest of his life? It happens, you know. Why, do, why do God, does God allow mongoloid babies to be born? If God is up there, why didn't he make everything just hunky-dory and perfect? And then there wouldn't be any problems. Amen? See what I mean? It's very hard for a man like Richard Bernbrand in solitary for three years and under torture for 13 years to think that God is always right. And it'd be just as difficult for you if you were put under the same circumstances. Believe me. The patience of Job, the desperate man who lost all he had, sat down on the ground and sustained Job for seven days and seven nights. And he didn't open his mouth. But let me tell you, when he finally got going, he accused God of everything short of murder. You say, was this justifiable? Well, I wouldn't pass Job and Job. I've never been in his position. Now, this is how men handle things. Men look around them and say, what about this poverty and death and disease and starvation? Let's all pitch in together and make the world a better place to live in and get rid of man and inhumanity to man and make the world safe for democracy. Oh, men and all the free world, blah, 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 blah. On the presumption that what is here can be fixed by education and science and you don't have to consult God for anything. So having kicked God out, the devilment goes right on, a man says, why? Answer, he can't tell why. You say, what about all these innocent people that suffer never did anything wrong? That's the problem. The book of Job deals with that problem. Why do the righteous suffer? That's the problem dealt with in the book of Job. And that's the basic root problem. Why doesn't God prevent disasters, explosions, tidal waves, accidents, typhoons, floods, earthquakes, wars? An infidel having no faith in the existence of God argues from the silence of God. Like old Job, uh, he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, and I may come even to his seat. Uh, Job's a perfect example of a man trying to get an answer from God for punishment and gets no answer, and to all apparent purposes, is suffering unjustly. As a matter of fact, he ex suffers the most excruciating torment a man could possibly suffer. Having lost all of his children, all of his property, he loses his health, then has his wife turn against him, and then, to add uh, vitrolic acid to vinegar, his friends turn against him. So if I'm talking to somebody who's going through these circumstances or has observed these circumstances, you may well ask about the silence of God. And before I continue, let me give you a little choice nugget from the words of truth, which, although not, it is not a scripture verse, is very scriptural. War is God's judgment on sin here. Hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. Hence, if you don't believe in God or hell, you have no answer. If you don't believe in a God who punishes sin in this world and in the next world, you have no contribution to make to this world or the next world. And don't give us this stuff about making the world a better place to live in in order to get votes. Politicians have been using that gimcrack on suckers for 2,000 years. 
You cannot explain the problems of suffering apart from the problem of sin. Men have devised several probable answers to the age-old problem. The deist said God is a good God, but he has no time to look after the details of life. God is only a spectator of the affairs of this life. He's a sort of an energetic force field in the back end of the universe that, having kicked things off, lets them run. These people are sometimes called theistic evolutionists. The atheist says the silence proves that God is a myth. A living God or a real God would speak, which ignores the fact that God has spoken. Now, this fact he's spoken for a length of 1,200 pages through more than 2,000 years of history with 24 people writing down the words. The materialist said the world is governed by law without a personal God. That is, the materialist teaches we're all at the mercy of blind chance. This will be situation ethics, existational Joe Fletcher, now happening uh, cuckoo, who goes around and thinks that since you cannot predict accurately, since past and present and future mean nothing, and since time is relative, and motion is relative, and distance is relative, that therefore truth is relative. Which means the entire universe, my dear friend, is governed by Darwin's law, blind chance, chance and accidental evolution. Now, you've got to be bananas to swallow that. So most college graduates do. I mean, you've got to be somewhere out in cloud land to believe that a, gover a universe governed by accidental chance you can set your watch on. You talk about blind fanaticism. You talk about radical extremism. What kind of a kook would believe that? And set his watch and his appointments on a, humor, on a universe that's governed by chance? Well, the reject God of the Bible plunges mankind into great darkness. Once you put out that Bible, you put out the last light to the nations, and you're in pitch black darkness with nowhere to go, nowhere to come from, and nothing sure about where you're standing. You'd be a great prospect for the drug or the dope traffic. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't make some money off you for long. Well, why then is God silent? Now, there are several negative answers. First of all, indifference. Christ suffers from the cross. He cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But God cared so much for souls, and Christ cared so much for souls, he continued to pour out his wrath upon Jesus Christ, and the Bible said, Jesus Christ was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and him was he was delivered by the determinate foreknowledge of God. Unobservant. People say God is silent because he doesn't see. That won't work at all. That won't do it at all. The Bible said, The eye of the Lord in every place beholding the good and evil. If there's any God up there, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-understanding. Somebody says, well, unloving. That's why he's silent. That won't work either. A good parent who truly loves his child will punish it once in a while. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 said, You forgot me exhortation which speaks unto you as unto sons. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Therefore, to say that God is silent because he doesn't love you, that won't work. A man said one time, he said, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in God even when he's silent. And I believe in love even when I'm alone. It's not God unwillingness. God sees the end from the beginning and plans our lives, and God is perfectly willing. We read in the Bible, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord said to Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked that he die, and not rather that he turn his wicked way and live? Wherefore, turn ye from your wicked ways, for why will you die? 
As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you think it pleases God that people go to hell? That isn't Bible. Do you think God gets some gross satisfaction, some sadistic pleasure out of seeing people burn in a lake of fire? That isn't Bible. That's the perversion of some fellow made of the Bible who is going to hell and want to make you think there wasn't any hell. Can't you figure that out? Do you think hell was created for man? The Bible says hell was created for the devil and his angels. If you go there, you'll be an alien. You'll be a displaced person. You'll be in the wrong environment. God never created man with the intention of damning him in a lake of fire. That's your idea. It's your idea to pitch your righteousness against God's righteousness. It's your idea to compete with the Almighty and pretend he's not there or you're as good as he is. You say, Brother Ruckman, I wouldn't do that. Then why haven't you trusted his righteousness instead of your own? It's your idea that you can pay for your sins in a matter of 20 or 30 or 100 years. That isn't God's idea. In the Bible, the Lord doesn't take place in the death of the wicked. He commands men to repent. He wants them to repent. He's willing for them to repent, willing for them to get right, waits for them to get right, and deals with them so they do get right. Now, having discussed these problems in regard to the silence of God, let's look at some answers to this problem. And notice we approach this problem, we approach this problem with an open mind and much more honestly and openly than the atheist. All atheists have closed minds, and most skeptics do, do, to, uh, to, uh, do also. The people who profess to be the most broad-minded, open-minded, when you pin them down to Bible questions, you'll find they're the most narrow-minded, intolerant bunch of bigots in the face of this earth. I've known Ph.D. for the college education who bragged about an open mind and being open to question and arriving at no final solutions and keeping the mind open uh, subject to change, and the only sin was being steadfast and not being willing to submit to change. You know all the communist gas, the change agents, the psychopoliticians. You get it, son, don't you? If you don't, you will. I've sat down and talked with these people by the hour and have discovered when you begin to deal with them from Scripture... They have the most snot-closed, bear-trap-shut minds you find on the face of this earth. I've talked to PhDs and medical doctors who, by the time I'd quoted five verses of Scripture, were reaching over their hand to shut the lids in the Bible because they couldn't stand to hear another verse quoted. Oh, boy, weren't they open-minded liberal, baby? Ain't we got some winners, huh? Let me tell you something. If I can plow through Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, Hemingway, James Joyce, Steinbeck, Nietzsche, Tufelsrake, Schopenhauer, Carlyle, Nietzsche, Kant, Hegel, Spinoza, Bertrand, Russell, Dewey, Giovanni, uh, Gentile, and Pestalozzi, and the rest of them to satisfy your stupidity. I guess you can read the Bible through one time to satisfy mine, can't you? Can't you? Why can't you? See how the snow drifts? If I can waste the time to read the Mahabhatra and the Bhagavad Gita and the Sutras and the Puranas and the Shastras and the Tripitaka and the Analects Confucius and the Zoroastrian literature and the Koran, which I've read, in order to satisfy your broad-mindedness, I guess you can spend five hours in the Gospel, John, can't you? You narrow-minded bigot, you. You intolerant, archaic, bigoted, old-fashioned, mid-Victorian, dogmatic, puritanical prude. <laughs> that cuts the mustard, doesn't it? All right, now. Eight answers for the silence of God. Number one, common sense. A lot of difficulty is the result of deliberate sin due entirely to your carelessness, neglect, and folly, which you may call accidents. Galatians 6, 7 says, Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
Like a famous preacher said one time, a lot of folks sow a crop and then spend the rest of their life praying for a crop failure. If God doesn't do something about a crop that you sowed, what does that prove? If you sow it, you're entitled to reap it, aren't you? Number two, the Bible view. Is it right that my puny mind should question the workings of Almighty God? I've got a finite mind. God has an infinite mind. What do I know about it? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is speaking, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, saith the Lord. And doubtless God's master plan for my life will have to include sorrow and suffering and trial and testing and pain. Why should I be exempt? Is anyone exempt? If you don't have cerebral palsy, don't some of you have leukemia? If you don't have leukemia, aren't some of you in a wheelchair? If some of you are walking around good, don't you have ulcers? If you don't have ulcers, don't some of you have regular sinus headaches? If you don't have headaches and ulcers, don't some of you have bills you can't pay? If you've got your bills paid, aren't some of you coming out of busted home through divorce courts? If you're married to stay together, aren't some of your children mongoloid and suffering from cerebral palsy? If they're all in good health, didn't some of them break legs and arms? If they're all in good health with no broken legs and broken arms, didn't some of them get tied up with the dope traffic? Don't talk to me like a Girl Scout. I'm a full age. And not the least bit humble, according to some of you people. I got sick and tired of these educated, high-culture religious folks thinking they have some secret corner in the market just because they're stupid. God sent one man to this world without sin, but he was a man of sorrows, quote, and acquainted with grief, unquote. Man of sorrows, what a name. Son of God who bore my shame. Ruin sinners to proclaim, or to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Why should I be exempt from trouble? Is anyone? A lady one time came to a famous philosopher in the ancient days and asked him to tell him about the terrible problem she had and how she'd get it fixed, and he said, I'll tell you what to do. He said, you go out up here and go up and down this block and walk around this block when you finish the block, go to the city. And he said, when you find somebody that has no trouble, you come back and I'll tell you how to get rid of your troubles. And after she'd been through about five blocks, she came back and said, I don't think I have any trouble. He said, did you find somebody who had no trouble? She said, every house I went into, somebody had some trouble. And then hers didn't look so big anymore. There's the philosophic view. Human free will involves the consequences of those actions. Human freedom means moral responsibility. Adultery leads to diseases many times. The syphilis, the rate of syphilis and other social diseases in America has gone up 800% in 20 years. You say, what should God do about it? What makes you think he should do anything about it? If you take the attitude that adultery and fornication are what you call numerality or adult consent, when God has already told you what they are, what do you think God's going to do about it? Help you out? I mean, you have to look at it philosophically, brother. Human freedom means moral responsibility. If you want all of the people of one race to support you with their tax money and set you free to do what you want to do, then, bless God, you're going to be responsible for what you do, son. And if you don't want the responsibility, you better have an ask for the handout. You better take what you got and thank God for it. Human freedom means moral responsibility. If you're not willing to be morally responsible for your freedom, then get ready to reap. Because you'll reap whether you take the responsibility or not. 
All right, something else. The Lord says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God will seek to divorce the believer from everything and cause him to cling closer to him. The Lord wants the attention of his people. The Lord wants the love of his people. If God has so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and here it is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Don't you suppose he wants some love in return from the believer? Don't you know it disturbed the Lord to see the believer loving all this godless slop out in the world when he ought to love him? Don't you know the first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind? This is the first and great commandment. Well, if you love movies more than the Lord, and hi-fi more than the Lord, and rock and roll more than the Lord, and baseball and football more than the Lord, and your wife and children more than the Lord, and your house and family and car more than the Lord, and your business and your ministry and your Sunday school attendance more than the Lord, what are you but a 20th century idolater? Why not call yourself by the right name, fella? Why not tell it like it is? You know what God will do? God will let judgment and affliction and suffering come upon his people to cut them off to where they'll have to lean on him. That isn't all. You're living now in the day of man, the day of sin, the day of grace. And in this age, God is inviting people to come home. It's a day of judgment, interference. Later, and the silence of God later will be broken with audible condemnation. God will yet reckon accounts with men in their relationship with God. That is, the reckoning, the books aren't all in yet. When we talk about the silence of God, we're talking from a temporary standpoint. You say, why God doesn't God do something about this? He's going to. You say, why doesn't God do something about that? He's going to. You say, when? You'll find out quicker than you want to find out. That Bible says, woe to them that say, where is the day of the Lord? Let it hasten. The Bible says, because judgment against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the Son of Man is fully set in them to do evil. Like I told you, a farmer wrote a preacher one time, and he said, I plant on a Sunday, and harvest on a Sunday, and plow on a Sunday, and here it is October, and i got the biggest bank account of any farmer in this state. How do you account for that? And the preacher wrote back and said, God doesn't settle accounts in October. It'll settle your hash at the white throne judgment. Then you'll see how it's going to come out. And if you suffered all your life and disposed, suppose it was needless and without purpose, when you get home to the judgment seat of Christ, the Christian, you'll find out there, too. In John 13, 7, Jesus answered and said to them, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Our trouble is impatience, and how impatient we are. First Peter 1, 7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than a gold that perisheth, though it be tribal fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are sufferings and trials you go through on this earth that you'll know nothing about why you went through them till you get home to glory. The most terrible tragedy that could happen to any man or woman to face this earth, bar none, would be to live a life of poverty and disease and suffering and torture and dying, and then die without Christ and go out into a lake of fire. That's hell here and hell hereafter. That's the most horrible thing that could happen to a person to face this earth. But listen, if you're undergoing suffering, affliction, and trial, and testing, and tribulation, and sorrow right now as a child of God, like the old song says, by and by, we'll understand it better by and by. Cheer up, my brother, walk in the sunlight. We'll understand it all by and by. I do not know why off around me my hopes all shattered seem to be. God's perfect plan I cannot see, but someday he'll make it plain. I cannot tell the depths of love that move the Father's heart above, 
my faith to test, my love to prove, but someday he'll make it plain. Someday he'll make it plain to me. Someday when I his face shall see. You ever hear that old song? Someday from sin I, from tears I shall be free. And someday I'll understand. If we could see beyond the day as God does see, our dearest loved ones pass away and blessings flee. We would not sigh, we would not fret. Each sorrow we'd soon forget, for many joys are waiting yet. Faith tells us so. If we could see, if we could know, we often say, but God in love a veil doth throw across the way. We cannot see what lies before. And so we cling to him the more. He leads us till this life is o'er. Trust and obey. An old song says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. As a great colored preacher said one time, he said, Heaven and the place for understanding, earth and the place for trust. Those are some of the greatest words ever spoken by mortal man. That's the truth. Jesus said about a certain man who was born blind, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That was the story of a man that was born blind. He suffered, you may suffer. You may suffer not for your sin, but to make you a blessing for somebody else. You may suffer not for your sin, but so you can comfort those that are in sorrow and trouble. You may suffer not because of your sin, but to make heaven more real to you, that you might set your affections on things above and not on things in this earth. You may suffer as a righteous person, as a good person, go through all kinds of testings and trials and tribulations, not because of your sins, but to teach you that when God says something, he means it, that God's promises are true, and that God's grace is sufficient for you, and that you through suffering may be a partaker of his holiness. This concludes our lesson today on the silence of God. Our next lesson coming up next week at the same time when the Theological Seminar of the Air will be with the Bible doctrine on what we call the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord will be our lesson next week at the same time on the Theological Seminar of the Air. Until then, may the Lord bless you and good day.